Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Global temperatures are on track to rise 2 to 5 degrees by the year 2100. That is according to the UN World Meteorological Organization. And that level of climate change will negatively impact every aspect of human life, from health to agriculture to the economy. An international team of geologists and anthropologists has been studying the last time humans had to adapt to the changing environment on a global scale. It was hundreds of thousands of years ago when Homo erectus roamed Africa. They hope we might learn about surviving climate change from our ancient ancestors. Georgia State University's Dan Diacampo has worked on the homonym sites and Paleo Lakes drilling projects since 2013. The geologist and geochemist is also dean of Georgia State Georgia State's College of Arts and Sciences, and he's joining me in the studio. Dan, I'm. Dio Campo. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> well, thank you for being with us. Thanks. It's great to be here. So help me with that project name, which I had such a hard time pronouncing, Hominin Sites and Paleo Lakes Drilling Project. What is a hominin? Yeah, a, a, this is this is a term that the evolutionary biologists have changed a, a few years ago. A hominin, well, let's back up a second. The hominids include all of the great apes. So that includes not only humans, but also chimpanzees, orangutans, gorillas, now, there's one group of the hominids that's really special. We call those the hominins, and those are the humans and all of our recently related ancestors. So those were the, those were the primates that were standing up tall. They were building tools, creating technology, and eventually becoming what we call human. All right. And the other part of that, paleo lakes, what is that? That shows us the importance of geology in understanding human origins. A lot of the famous fossils that we have uh, showing human evolution come from Eastern Africa, where there is, of course, the giant East African rift, where the continent is ripping apart. And as it rifts, as it rifts apart, a lot of times the, those basins fill up with water and we see lake basins, like the great East African lakes of today. And as those basins fill in with sediment, that's how we, how the Earth collects the fossils and the sediments that tell us about the Earth's past. Okay, so we'll talk about one of those sites in just a minute. But I'm, I'm curious about your hypothesis going into this. this is a large-scale science experiment, so the experiments begin with a hypothesis. What is yours? Yeah, the incredible thing here is it's at the, the Hominin Sites Paleo Lakes Drilling Project really is not just one project. It's really six projects in six different rift valleys up and down the East African Rift. And the, the scientific community has been working on this project and related projects really for decades now. And if you think back to the 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 early days of the hunt for human origins, like with Mary Leakey's groundbreaking work at Old Divide Gorge in Tanzania in the 50s, we've had these spectacular fossils and artifacts, the stone tools that were being made millions of years ago. But the burning question has been, what was the environment like mm -hmm. where our ancestors were developing? What, what, what kind of habitats existed? How did early hominins interact with the woodland species, the grassland savannas, the lake systems, and and therefore, how did technology emerge among our ancestors? So the hypothesis that's kind of overarching our work is that climate change, and a lot of this natural climate change is due to changes in the Earth's orbit, 
that climate change affected the habitats. It affected the distribution of resources and hazards across the landscape, and that our ancestors had to adapt to that. Okay, so you and your team are examining past climate change or how the environment looked at these various different times throughout history to help us understand it and its effect on human life today. So what period of time or periods of time are you investigating? Well, each of the HSPDP sites is looking at a different lake and a different time slice in our history. Um, a couple of them that we've been focusing on recently are really zeroing in on the last one million years. Hmm. And this is a time when we see cycles in, uh, in the Earth's climate. You know, here in North America, we have ice ages roughly every 100,000 years in recent geological time. In tropical Africa, we don't have ice ages and glaciers. We have fluctuations from wet climates to dry climates and back again. And so we've been seeing over the last million years, it's been getting increasingly arid in eastern Africa with these cycles of wet and dry superimposed on top of that. And you can tell that by drilling down to the core and seeing how the sediments line up from year to year or era to era. Exactly. We drill down through the sediments. And just like looking at the layers of sediment in the Grand Canyon, we look at the layers of sediment in these cores. And we work with specialists who use uh, radiometric isotopes to find out how old these layers are. Mm -hmm. they, they examine the volcanic ash layers, and they date them. And then we look at various indicators of what the environment was like back then uh, in the lab. And this is, uh, I've been really fortunate because the, the study of the mineral chemistry has been really important to many of these projects, and that's what I specialize in in my lab at Georgia State. Okay, so based on the findings, what do we know now about human evolution during that period? Well, human evolution was, it. everything seems to be telling us very closely related to environmental change. Um, the the hypothesis that we're, we're really pushing on now is to to really see if the the um, high resolution changes in the Earth's climate, which we think we were were happening over twenty thousand year cycles back then, a little different than what we see today, that those were driving environmental changes that early humans had to adapt to, early hominins had to adapt to. So, for example, in southern Kenya, one of the HSPDP teams has shown that about four hundred thousand years ago, the environment was really starting to fluctuate very rapidly back and forth between these wet and dry climate periods. That's around the same time that uh, the, the, what we call, what archaeologists call the Middle Stone Age emerged. These are much smaller tools than occurred before then. They came, the, the raw material, the stone raw material came from uh, many kilometers away from where we find them in the archaeological sites now. So the the early hominids were adapting and um, and able to move among different resources over time. Okay, so that's about migration, where where these early humans were going for to find tools to find food. We're guessing. Yeah, and and, and water too. And, water uh, resources, of course, is very important. And you know, you, it's it's hard to imagine how dramatic the environmental changes are. But if you imagine Lake Lanier turned into Death Valley. That's the kind of severe environmental changes we're talking about. About uh, over the course of 20,000 years? Is that the idea? Over thousands of years, yeah. yeah. And so that full cycle from wet to dry and back again would take about 20,000 years. So what kind of fossils are you finding? You mentioned 
tools, uh, but what other kind of evidence of other forms of life? Well, that's really a really important line of evidence. We find, uh, of course, we start with the other vertebrates, like we find um, bovids, you know, the large hoofed mammals that you see on grasslands today. And the the um, biologists can tell us about whether these animals like to live in forests or whether they like to live in grassland. So that's an important part of how we reconstruct what the ancient landscape looked like. Now, you don't find those in the middle of a lake where we're drilling. So what we look for there are microfossils, um, organisms like diatoms, which, uh, are, which have tiny silica shells, microscopic shells, or fossil pollen that tells us what kind of vegetation was growing around the lake basin. What is what is the pollen? Re- it's especially timing now here in Georgia. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what does the pollen reveal about what kind of life forms were existing then? Well, this is one of the things we always look for when we bring back samples from Eastern Africa. We we make sure that we're not seeing Georgia pine pollen in our samples because that tells you there's some contamination. But if you imagine a, a lake basin with a with fresh water in it, it's it could be surrounded by uh, wet, humid forests, that po- the pollen from the, that vegetation gets into the lake sediment. And then if the climate dries and we no longer have a forest, but we have a grassland, now the sediment is collecting grass pollen. So we can see the fluctuations in the ecosystem. Dan Diacampo is with us. He's from Georgia State University. He's a geologist and a geochemist, and he's working on the HS. PDP, the Hominem Sites and Paleo Lakes Drilling Project. This is going on in several sites around the world to try and determine what the climate was like in ancient history and how those changes and climate change that has been going on for millions of years might affect us. So you mentioned the lakes are an important place to go. Uh, Lake Magadi in Kenya is one of the places where you are drilling, close to fossil sites where things have been discovered. How would you describe this lake? It's kind of like Death Valley covered by baking soda. <laughs> Ooh, doesn't sound pleasant. Yeah, it's a it, in that lake, uh, the the waters get so saline that they they precipitate these crystals of, of a mineral we call trona, which is basically baking soda. And uh, as those crystals grow, they form a, a thick crust on the surface of the lake. And when you go out there onto the lake flats, it's it's very dusty, and this trona dust flies all around. If you get very close to the lake bed, you can see these big crystals growing, like up to an inch or more taller. It kind of looks like a miniature version of Superman's Fortress of Solitude. Wow! And if you if you listen closely, you can hear the the crinkle crinkle of the crystals as they get toppled over and they blow around in the wind. That must be a pretty interesting sensory experience to be there. It's amazing, especially in the middle of the night when it's pitch dark and, you know, drilling operations on a project like this are 24-7. Really? So we'll have a drilling team out there in the middle of the night and it's like you're on another planet. Well, so what does a 24-7 drilling activity mean? What does that do? Is that disruptive to the ecosystem? Well, all of our operations, we work very hard to uh, to minimize the environmental impact, both in terms of the physical environment as well as the cultural environment. Because uh, remember, many of these places are in rural eastern Africa. Mm-hmm. People are living there, villages. Yeah, absolutely. And so... Um, Involving the local community and making sure everyone understands exactly what our scientific and educational goals are uh, is a very important part um, of the program. 
So what kind of picture do you get of Lake Magadi hundreds of thousands of years ago from looking at what you're seeing now? Well, it wasn't always the arid wasteland that we see today. There were times in the past when it was full of freshwater fish and the surrounding landscape had lush vegetation. And that's just a very different picture than uh, than southern Kenya that, that we see today. Mm. How far down is the team drilling? Uh, most of the drill, drill sites get down about 250 meters. We've actually collected, well, about 6,000 feet of core from all of these six sites. It's, it's been an incredible international collaboration with over 100 scientists. What kind of technical challenges or even dangers are there with an undertaking like this? Yeah, uh, drilling operations are, are always dangerous and safety is very important. So, uh, you know, scientists often aren't used to being required to wear, you know, steel-toed boots and hard hats, but we, we follow all of the, the rules to keep everyone safe. Uh, there were some minor injuries over the past few years, but uh, all, all in all, it was a very successful operation. So this project began in 2013, but you've been researching the Earth's evolution and human evolution in East Africa since the 90s. How do your findings complicate or maybe complement what we previously understood about the relationship between Earth's evolution and human evolution? Yeah, the big thing that drilling uh, helps us to do is, is move away from the outcrops. And the, the outcrops are those, if, you know, if you imagine the Grand Canyon, you, you see the layers of rocks there. Those are what... Mother Nature has revealed to us naturally. But what was happening, you know, 100 meters away or, or uh, 10 kilometers away? We don't know because there are no outcrops there. So when we go with a drill rig, we can poke down into those rocks and get evidence away from the outcrops. So we're starting to put together a three-dimensional image of what was happening in all these lake basins. Plus, we can start to compare lake basins to one another. So, for example, southern Kenya looks a little different than southern Ethiopia. Mm. And we can start to really quantify environmental change and understand how it, it worked regionally. Dan, earlier this month, you presented this research to your peers at a conference in Austria. How did that go over? Oh, it was fantastic. Uh, the, the, it was a chance to get together not only with geologists, but with evolutionary anthropologists and biochemists who are studying uh, DNA of, of human populations and really start to get to what I think the scientific community has tried to move towards for a long time, which is not the hyper-specialized disciplines that everyone studies. You know, I'm a mineralogist and geochemist. Mm -hmm. But actually, as we start to talk across the disciplines, we can really understand what the record of human evolution is. And we mentioned before that one goal of the project is to understand how climate change might affect human life in the future, given this view of the past. Any takeaways so far for this contemporary era? Well, the big the big takeaway for us as as for me as a geologist in this study is that the the environmental changes we see over the past million years really take thousands of years to occur, and they're they're the type of changes we're seeing today. But the changes today are happening over a single human lifetime, hmm. so it's really dramatically faster environmental change that we're seeing today. Um, thankfully, I think the other message that we can take out of this project is that humans are highly adaptable. We have the ability to understand our environment and to change our behavior. Yeah, well, that, I guess, is the silver lining of this. But if you think of the lush, beautiful, forested 
environment and then that arid, dry canyon with baking soda all over it. <laughs> I mean, do you is it too much to project that that is a cycle that we can expect on Earth? We absolutely can. Uh, we know some of these cycles are natural and they take thousands of years, and we can uh, we can predict that. But we can also start to understand in this world of, of really high carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and there's no sign of it slowing down, what did the Earth look like in the distant past when we had CO2 levels that high? Now, we're talking tens of millions of years ago uh, when we had CO2 levels as high as we've pushed them today. But we can look back at the Earth's history and understand how did the, the atmosphere circulate, where was moisture going, and how did the environment change? When the, you said you talked of, you, that you created these three dimensionals or you can make these three dimensional models, is that something that's going to be available for all of us to see at some point? Absolutely. Uh, we'll we'll be of course publishing our results in scientific journals, but we also have uh, groups of artists and filmmakers who are working on helping us to communicate the the meaning of this work uh, to a broader audience. When do you expect to wrap? Oh, they'll never be a true wrap. <laughs> There's no finish. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, o over the next few years, we're we're really just getting our first big papers out uh, this year. So um, th there should be more communications in the years to come. Well, fascinating work, Dan Diacampo. Thank you so much. Thank you. He's a geoscientist and associate dean in the College of Arts and Sciences at Georgia State University. That's all we have time for for today on Second Thought. Is produced by Amelia Brock, Leighton Rowell, and the Raven Taylor. Jesse Nyswanger is our engineer. Don Smith, our dean of grammar. Amy Kiley, senior producer. Sarah Shariari is the managing editor of GPB News. You can join the conversation on our Facebook group, GPB Radios on Second Thought. We're on Twitter at OST Talk. If you missed any of the show, want to listen on your own time, hit the Programs tab and download and subscribe to our podcast. Virginia Prescott, see you tomorrow.